We're talking about James. We're in the fourth chapter this morning. When I came as Grant began the sermon, he talked about, you know, you take the long view. And what the long view entailed was a lot of things about the church itself. And sometimes why we have problems with our image as the church. And he mentioned several things like, you know, false followers. Uh, it's a message that makes people really uncomfortable because it begins with pointing out their sin. But it also talks about our failures. And so James decided that, well, here it is. This is the Word of God, right? You see, yes, Word of God. I mean, it's, it really is. I, I, you can read. But... Timothy tells us that it's, you know, profitable for re rebuke and for education and for training up and for just righteousness sake in our lives. And the, the good news is this is the word of God and it's inspired, which basically means that, you know, in, in places where you see in scripture where it says, and God said to them, write this down or, you know, record these words very specifically, but the whole thing is true. If you're going to believe that it's the inspired Word of God, you're going to believe that it's not just authoritative, but it is the authority on truth. Which is good news, but it's also kind of bad news because sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes it has to be very blunt and, and pointed. When you parent one of these days, oh, by the way, how many of you would consider yourself Kyle's children? Just let's go ahead and make sure he qualifies for all the deacon roles. Okay, so parenting these people, Kyle. Um, when you parent, there will be days when your voice will be excited and happy and all this stuff. There will be days when you'll be a little more direct with your children. God doesn't leave that out. Some days God speaks to us, and even though it's strong and it's pleasant and it's direct and it's sometimes blunt, it's exactly what we need to have. So this is what we want to consider. There's a, a cartoon, old cartoon called Pogo, and he coined the phrase in that cartoon one time about actually walking through the forest and tripping over all the trash that man has left behind. But he coined the phrase, we have met the enemy and he is us. When we look at what James has to say about dealing with conflict, this is what he wants us to know. We have met the enemy here and it's us. All right? So that's where we start. Let me just read to you this passage that we're looking at in chapter 4, the first 10 verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask but do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, you do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, let's pray about that. Father, we come to you this morning, and these men and women have gathered here, just like people have gathered at the Bridge Church this morning, just like people are gathering in churches all across the city, state, nation, and world, and we are drawn to you. Lord, no matter what the style of music, no matter what the style of teaching, we are here because there is something more, and that is you. So, Father, as we come in today, I echo the thought, let us be different going out than when we came in. Let us be more in love with you. Let us be more aware of you in our lives. And Father, let us be more more complete in our relationship with you and with others by realizing that the world is a very real place that we are in. And sometimes there's conflict with that. Give us this day, Father, our daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen. When you go to the doctor, he's going to treat one of two things, right? He's going to treat the symptoms, and he's going to treat the cause. You're probably initially more interested that he treat the symptoms. I had the joy, the utter joy this past week of passing my 25th kidney stone. There are symptoms that I cannot begin to describe to you. And you want them treated. Give me drugs. Give me sleep. Give me something, God. Or just take me home and take care of my family. (laughs) But really, you also want the medical clientele that you have become a part of. You want the doctors to treat you at the cause level. I know, you're thinking, Ken, you drink way too much Coca-Cola. But I got a reprieve from one of those medical guys one time. He says, you know what? Your stones aren't related to that anymore. There's something else. (laughs) So when James writes, he kind of mentions the symptoms, but he shoots right past to it and just right there, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Let's just go to the cause. Because there's conflict in relationships. I'm married. My wife is here. And we are married. All right, so it's like 5 till 12, which means it's 5 till 11 in Texas. We got married at 10 a.m. It started at 10 a.m. So by this time, 37 years and 7 months ago, exactly... We've been married. Oh, but within marriage, not ours, but there's conflict. <laughs> Just like in any relationship. And within all kinds of ways, we look at it and we think, well, I mean, like the divorce rate is still around 50%. Now, good news for you guys, it's actually getting lower in your age bracket. Bad news for me, it's getting higher in mine, which averages out to where it's still really bad. But it's because of conflict. Or 
friends. Just get mad at each other and just quit being friends. Guys dating girls, girls dating guys, and you just kind of break up. I do have a, a thought that Christian breaking up. Anybody here dating? There's a couple of sheepish guys in the front row. She doesn't know it yet, but we are, you know. <laughs> When you're dating as a believer, know this. First of all, the highest priority, or not priority, the highest probability is that you're going to break up. Okay, I'm just sorry. That's just how it is. But you might not, and you might make it all the way through and, and live happily ever after. But if you break up, if there is conflict in your relationship, it ought to be different because of whose you are. All right? The way you treat someone even in conflict and coming through the conflict, ought to scream, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I need to love others like I need to be loved. I need to treat others like I need to be treated. And God treats me really well, and he's raised the bar for me. Conflict is in all human relationships. And so there's this whole passage in here, one of several in Scripture, that deals directly with conflict. So let's look at some of the ways it breaks down the source of our conflict with our fellow man. He jumps in right off the bat. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The cravings are at war within you. The desires, some of the versions of Scripture say the lusts of the flesh are at war within you. And this is where conflict comes. The source of all our relational conflicts, though, is not that, but it's, that our, it's our failure to please God. If you're living your life in, that is pleasing to God, it's going to take a lot of the wind out of the sails of those passions and those desires and those lusts that you contend with that make you displeasing to God. So the first focus that he says here is that, let's, let's recognize where it comes from. The cause is that we're displeasing to God. We have unreasonable desires. We lack in our asking. And then sometimes when we ask, it's for the wrong purposes, just to spend it on ourselves. There's a guy named Robert Jones, wrote a book called Pursuing Peace. And I give you this quote from there, failure to please God, our failure or the other person's failure or both is the ultimate cause of all relational conflict. Bank on it. Whenever there is conflict, one or both parties is not pleasing God, period, end of quote. Uh, uh, I, 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 I want to point at someone else, though. It's their fault. The husband and wives are in conflict. It's, it's his fault or her fault. It's not my fault. That's not what this says. It's actually, though, good news because conflict is very confusing, especially when you're in the middle of it. This tells us that we could spend our entire lives trying to 
unravel the, the specific things that cause conflict in our life, but really it boils down to just this, simply be pleasing to God and it will help ease the conflicts. Wow, that sounds just like really easy, Jesus. Thank you for putting that in your word. How easy is that though? I mean, if it was that easy, we could just like quit and go home early, right? There's more. Beginning in verse 4, we talk about the source of our conflict with God. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, thank you, James. Let's just ratchet it up a little bit more. Not only am I bad because I have all these selfish desires, but I'm also God's number one enemy. That's not good news. I thought gospel meant good news. But if we are trying to be friends with the world systems that are around us, then we are at war with the God system that he's created. There is no middle ground here. You're never sitting still. You're either pursuing God or you're pulling away and pursuing the world. Here, the world refers to the fallen system, and God is opposed to the fallen and idolatrous acts of people in the world. And this is caused because of the fall, the brokenness of the world, when we're disobedient and disrespectful and, and irreverent to God. But God is in conflict with us. I mean, he's in conflict with the world system, but he's also in conflict with us when we're befriending the world. He calls it adultery. He calls it that we are cheating on him with the gods of this world. And if our bridegroom, if our church, if our husband, the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, if we're not being faithful to him, but we're turning away and going after another, it's spiritual adultery. Bible pulls no punches. Again, it's authoritative, it's his word. That's good news. Bad news is he never pulls punches. Bible's not written to make us all look like heroes. Doesn't even make the 12 look like heroes. Or the prophets or the kings. Doesn't make any of them look like... It's just the real thing. We need to know that we're in that same deal. So the source of our conflict with our fellow man, the source of our conflict with God, because God is jealous for our, our affections. The same thing that causes us to be in conflict with each other is causing us to be in conflict with God. The same thing that causes us to be in conflict with God, our illicit pursuit of worldly things causes us conflict with God and conflict with others. You know? How do you expect to be a friend to God and a friend with the world at the same time? He says, yes, be in the world, but he says, don't be of the world. And you have to be into God all the time. 38 years and seven months and a few minutes was not because 
we came to the agreement five and a half days a week, we will be faithful to each other. But we're going to take a day, day and a half off on the weekends and not be faithful. What? Okay. What if it's just like one day a month? Would that be okay, God? Can we be unfaithful to, you know, our husband, our wife, one day a month and it still be okay in that relationship? My wife is not saying amen to any of this. We're to be faithful in our marriage till death do us part. Is Savannah here? There you are. Okay, good. I can't say the next stuff then because I'm doing their premarital counseling and I want it to be a surprise for them. So. The rest of you just drop by my tree Tuesday afternoon and, and I'll tell you all about it. Um, but God's got a, an answer for those times when the conflict in a marriage, just like the conflict in a friendship, just like the conflict within a church body, God's got an answer for those things. He starts to say this in the fifth verse as we look at the source of our conflict resolution. Do you suppose that it's of no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more power, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It reminded me of the verse from Jeremiah 17 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Because of the brokenness of mankind, because of the brokenness of the world, we're operating out of a great deficiency that only God can fill, that only God can remedy, that only God can answer. He gives to us because the spirit that he's made to dwell in us yearns for him and he yearns for us, but we can't connect on that. So he has to also give us grace. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You put on the armor of God. Go back to Ephesians 6 and read all about your swords and your shields and your your, your breastplates and your good shoes and, you know, all this kind of stuff. You put on all this stuff. This is your, what I'm, I'm, I'm strengthening up, so I'm ready to battle against these things within me. How do you put stuff on that, that helps you battle with stuff within you? He says also in Colossians 3, to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love towards one another. There's a lot of things for us to do to resist the devil and to draw near to him. This is the point in the sermon where, you know, maybe I could go off and give you a list of, you know, here's five things you can do to resist the devil. You know, a lot of spiritual push-ups that you can do. And some of them will work for you or you or you or you or you, some of you over here. But it may not work for all of you, so this five 
list thing may or may not work, may not come in handy. It would be helpful though if I would at least give it to you so you could try it out, right? Not today. So what I want you to know is it says for you to resist the devil, which means it is possible for you to resist Satan. You are not defeated. You are only beat up. What is the Rocky line? I'm, I'm just now thought, thought of this, and I, so I didn't look it up, but what's the Rocky line he tells to his son? It's not how hard you hit. It's how hard you can get up and, and get hit and still get up. That's what Satan does. Satan's going to come and he's going to hit you hard. And you're just going to scare the hoo-ha out of him when you get up. And you're going to get up again and again and again because you can resist the devil. You have his word on it. So there's a lot of ways to resist the devil. Put on the armor, hearts of compassion, all of these things. Do these things. You don't need a list from me. God gives you plenty of lists. Draw near to God. How do you pursue your father? What do you do to draw near to God? What do you do to make it possible for you to be his child? It begins with grace and then quickly moves to humility. See, grace is never really received by the proud. I don't need that. I can handle it. Grace is never received by the proud. Grace is always received by the humble of heart. And so for us to have this grace, this soothing, this balm, this, this salve that God just coats us with, his grace in times of conflict, in times of destruction, for us to have this, this begins with humility. Romans 12.3 says, For by grace given to me, I say, everyone among you not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Seek purity. Direct your emotions. Lead these things to the exaltation of God in your life. Well, I don't know if I should be looking at that. Don't. I don't know if I should go over there and don't. I wonder if I ought to just hang out and don't. Okay? This is where... Don't hear this as the old guy coming out in me. Hear this as the parental coming out in me. There's a lot of stuff that's out there in the world. It was out there when I was in college, just in different forms and fashion. Sin has always been around. And the answer is still the same that I had to deal with and struggle with. Just don't. There's a little thing within you, the Holy Spirit, that will nudge your heart. And if you listen to that nudge, if you feel that that push of the Holy Spirit within you, then just don't when you're about to do. And the next time, maybe the nudge is a little more prevalent or a little easier to sense or something. And the more you don't and not do, 
the more easy it is the next time that same kind of temptation rolls up. I'm not sure that this works universally because these robocalls that I get, I don't answer them. And they do keep calling. But I think eventually they'll think that I died <laughs> and take me off their list. We want to let Satan know that we have died to sin through Jesus Christ. And we have been risen again to the fullness of life through Jesus Christ. But it begins when you're humble and you learn how to take the bullet, take one for the team, take the hit. I think that, I'm trying not to trip over stuff, man, don't worry. I think that one of the things that we have to realize, you know, we always, you know, like I'm playing hearts with some of you guys and we know that that person's just about to like try to run it, you know, and shoot the moon and somebody needs to go ahead and take a heart for the team, right? Somebody's got to take one. None of us want it because we're all like overbooked already on that. And yeah, take it. When your buddies in conflict with you, take one for the team. Isn't your friendship more valuable than whatever the root of that conflict is that's displeasing to God and displeasing to your friend? When your boyfriend, when your girlfriend is being stupid, take one for the team. Isn't the relationship more valuable than whatever stupid thing is going on? Not many of you married folks here, but a few of you out there. Your spouse? Yeah. Your spouse is always going to need a help. Take one for the team. Because when God brought you together, this is what you're all about from now on, okay? Just being one. Being two formally complete individual selves before God into one in front of God, and this is worth whatever effort it takes, whether it's your idea, her idea, your compromise, this is what you're preserving. Take one for the team. Be humble. Don't let your pride get in the way. But it's not my fault. So, it's your friendship. But it's not my reason that at this is, no, but it is your relationship. God, I'm not sure if I even care. Yeah, you do. Because God always cares for you. Church, there's going to be little squabbles within the body, okay? Humble yourself and take one for the team. Because this, come on, you had fancy party Friday night. Everybody dressed up and looked so fine and good. And then you went out and cooked pancakes, and some of you served pancakes in my front yard over across the street, and we're there till like 2, 2.30 in the morning, and there was conversations that went well beyond the toppings on the pancakes and well into the, the soaking in of the Holy Spirit. And then after being up that late, some of you went over and started praising God, 9 a.m., let's just go all day, all night, let's come sleep through the service the next day, I see you out there, no. Look at what you're doing, church. And you know what? 
God's noticing. And God is pleased with your pursuit. Other people notice too. Some of you are going to look at, you know, like you're kind of maybe culty or weird or something. That's okay. As long as you're not. (laughs) But you need to humble yourselves in order to protect what God has blessed you with here. And this is changing lives, not because of H2O, but because of what God is doing through your pursuit of him together in the company of strangers formerly and now fast friends and brothers and sisters. It's worth protecting. One of the the joys, I'm going to wrap it up. One of the joys that comes in ministry life is when you get to turn the light on in somebody's dark room, okay? That's what I'm asking you to learn how to do. Conflict is darkness. And I'm asking you to look for the light switch. In marriage counseling, I've done, you know, man, I've got like 60 plus weddings and about half that many funerals. They're not the same. And in family relationships, there's always conflict. There's always something going on. And you have to know that darkness is just so prevalent in our relationships. Would you be the light bearer? Would you be the switch flipper and help bring light into the darkness of relationship conflict in your friendships, in your relationships, romantic, in your homes, in your dorms, at your work, in your church. The formula is simple. It's our fault. Own it. And Christ paid for it and redeemed it. And we just need to please him and live those lives that are pleasing to him. Let's acknowledge our role in the conflict. If, if it's because I'm being displeasing to God, which is probably true, whether you think it's the other person's fault or not, somewhere in your heart, you're not pleasing God in that relationship. Own that and let God begin to heal the relationship, begin to heal the conflict. But you have to You have to humble yourself to do that. One of my mentors in life was a guy who worked for my dad. His name was Frank. Frank taught me that to dress up, all you have to do is put on nice jeans and a white shirt. Frank looked sharp all the time. I was like riding with Frank in the pickup across South Texas, going from gas station to gas station since I was very, very young. And I'd be over there riding in the truck and he'd be driving along and he'd look over there at me and he'd say, because I'm like 12 or something, he'd say, you're smarter than I am, so tell me what you think. I don't even know where we're going, Frank. What are you talking about? He would always honor me in his conversations. We both knew I wasn't smarter than him, but it always set the stage for open dialogue. Figure out something you need to say in your relationships that honors the relationship and honors the Father who gives you relationships. 
And let's go about fixing those things. There may be someone in the room today that you need to go to that you're in conflict with, okay? Big crowd like this, there's surely some knothead in here you don't like. That's what you're feeling in your heart, right? That person's a knothead. That person's a lug nut. They have no idea what they've done to me. But they're not the one that's displeasing God right now, right? There may be somebody in this room you need to go to as we sing the last song and as we all cram our way out the doors up top and and we're talking and there's lots of chatter and lots of noise and you need to just kind of push your way through the crowd and maybe find that person. Say, can we start over? Because I don't think I've been right with God. Or there may be somebody in the room who is in conflict with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world and the King of all things. And you need to make that right too. You need to wiggle your way through the noise and the distraction and humble yourself before him. I don't need God. Well, yes, you do. That's why we're here. Humble yourself before him for he lavishes his grace upon us and opens it up for us to come to him because he wants us to be pleasing to him. But we can't do it on our own. And so he comes and he wraps his arms around us and he says, well done, good and faithful child. I don't know what you have to work on today. It's thankfully good that your pastors don't always know what you have to work on. Sometimes you need to share with them and get their word and get their help. But all the time, you just need to let God tell you, and he will. So if you know there's someone you need to straighten out the books with today, straighten out the books with them. Make it right. But if you know that you need to make it right with God today, do that too. There's no time like the present. One more prayer. Father, Maybe our daily bread is for us just to feed upon your word and and, and what you speak into our hearts, not the rattlings that might come out of my mouth, but Father, what you do, what you bring to this conversation. Lord, help us. Show us in our mind, maybe the face of that person that we have wronged by being displeasing to you. Give us courage and boldness to go take care of that, too. For Father, this is your family. This is your church. It needs to be pretty in your sight. Make us that. We can't do it on our own. In Jesus' name. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand and worship with us?